All right, good morning. Uh, I feel like maybe they were plotting against me. We, this was like our record late starting time, uh, maybe to try to make me preach a shorter sermon or something like that. When I was typing this one up, I was like, this could be a longer one. I don't know. Uh, we'll see what happens. I'll try not to. I won't feel bad if I hold you for a long time, but I'll try not to hold you forever. Um, but these are important things. We've been going through the Old Testament. Uh, Tanner kicked us off, and we've been trying to just kind of <clears throat> consider the person of God by observing what the Bible reveals about the way that he's worked through history to bring about his plan for the world. And we've been looking specifically at the Old Testament and kind of wondering, you know, people were pretty down on the Old Testament. And even in the church, it seems like, it just seems like it's so disconnected from us. And there's so many weird things. We're going to see weird things this morning. Um, and, and you just think, you know, how, how in the world does that make a difference now? Like, how, how in the world... Does that apply to us? And, and how in the world is the God of the New Testament the same as the God of the Old Testament? We've got these weird things that were going on back then, and now it seems so different, like we're under Christ and this new covenant. And, and how, do those, how do these things mesh? So we're going through the whole Old Testament just to get an idea of, of what God was doing back then and hopefully get a better understanding of the big picture of the Old Testament and, and hopefully be able to take that and see how much it applies to us now and how much it just kind of connects everything in the Bible and everything in the New Testament relies on everything that happened back then. So a lot of us may have a basic understanding of the Old Testament, um, but hopefully just kind of looking at it in this context, like this big picture kind of way is gonna help us. So we've looked so far at God's creation of the universe. And we've looked at the fall of creation through Adam and Eve's rebellion against God, their sin against him. And we've looked at the sovereignty of God over all things as evidenced in the life of Job. And now we are going to see how God set his plan into motion for the redemption of the world through a family. Families are important in the Bible. I know that most of us get to long sections of like, so-and-so fathered so-and-so, and he fathered so-and-so, and he fathered so-and-so, and he fathered so-and-so, and we start checking out mentally because like genealogies aren't all that exciting when you're reading them. But genealogies have re relevance in the Bible. Uh, the reason for this is because of a promise that God made right after Adam and Eve sinned. Uh, and we might have, we've gone over this already, but look at uh, Genesis 3.15 where right after the fall, God is, is cursing creation. He curses Adam, he curses Eve, he curses Satan and creation. But in the midst of that, he says something that's, that's kind of upbeat. Genesis 3.15, he says, I will put enmity, enmity between you, he's talking to Satan, between you, Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. I kind of like the way the NIV renders this. He's, it says, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So there's this promise that God has made right here at the beginning, right after the fall, that the offspring from the woman is going to crush Satan's head. So that's important. That's a promise right away that something is going to happen through the offspring of Adam and Eve. And so the continuity of Adam and Eve's offspring then is a critical element of the story as we move forward. And it's a critical element of the Old Testament. Unfortunately, however, things got really bad after the fall. We're not going to talk about Noah today, but I'm just going to quickly say sin ran rampant. 
You see in Genesis 6, 5, um, it's, it says that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. So sin just kept spreading. Like as they had more kids, as more people filled the earth, sin kept spreading. And it said it just got worse and worse and worse. And it got to the point that God caused a flood to cover the whole world. But he preserved humanity through Noah's family. Several generations after Noah, we find that many advanced civilizations and nations have begun to emerge. The Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, like all these that we're kind of familiar with maybe, Egyptians anyway, um, are, are starting to build up after the, after the flood and after Noah's family comes out. Their family uh, multiplies and now you start seeing these civilizations that we start to recognize. And... Uh, the vast majority of men on earth, though, have, as they continue to multiply after the flood, and even though God preserved this family, and he said, hey, I'm preserving you, I'm doing this thing, even though he did that, shortly after they were saved from the flood, things just got worse again. It seems like the only, the only intention of man's heart, the only thing that he's interested in doing is whatever seems best to him. Like things just keep getting worse. And, and it doesn't seem like anything's getting any better. Like men continue to sin. The world is cursed. Things are getting really depressing for most people. And it seems also that in this fallen state, this part in history, Man has no inclination to seek after God. Things just keep getting worse and worse. And they don't seek after God. So, God is looking at this situation and what does he do? No one is seeking after him. No one's obeying his will. Everything keeps getting worse and worse. He pursues men. So, he is going to start something now. This is the beginning of redemptive history. So it's pretty exciting stuff. He goes to a man named Abram. I'm going to struggle to say Abram for the first half of this sermon. If you, you might know why. Um, he was a descendant of Noah's son Shem, this man Abram. He lived in a land called Ur of the Chaldeans. There was nothing particularly noteworthy about Abram's life. We aren't told that he walked with God, as is said of Enoch earlier in Genesis. Nor are we told that he found favor in God's eyes, as is said of Noah. As a matter of fact, Abram and his family were known idol worshipers. You can actually read about that in Joshua 24.2. It talks about how before the Israelites existed, their fathers, back in the land of the Chaldeans, worshipped idols, heathen gods. So Abram and his father, they're living in Ur and they're worshipping foreign gods gods. They were heathens. I think that this is interesting. This is something that I kind of realized looking at Abraham uh, this week. Um, had Abraham continued to live among the Chaldeans, if he continued to be just a guy among those people, then he would have been one of many Babylonians. I think that that's interesting. Because if you know anything about Babylon in the Bible, you know that they are not the good guys. Like, they are the bad guys. They are the template for all that is bad. 
And they continue to be the template on to Revelation for badness, for sinfulness, for sinful people. And so I thought it was kind of interesting to see, hey, Abraham, Abram was taken from the Babylonians. And if he had continued to live there, he would have been one of them. I think that that's cool. So God had other plans for Abram. I already messed up once. He would not be a Babylonian. He would not continue to live there. He would be something much different because God was going to change who Abram was. God was going to do this. So we're going to read at the very beginning of Abraham's story. I did it again. Abram's story. Just have it after so many years. I'm ruining the, surpri- the surprise later. Uh, Genesis, Genesis 12. <clears throat> and we're just going to read verses 1 through 3. So this is the first thing that is said about this man. Like We're not told anything about how he lived, what he was up to beforehand. This is the first thing that we hear. Genesis 12, 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God speaks to this man Abram, seemingly out of nowhere, and tells him, follow me. This kind of makes me think of Jesus when he walks up to the disciples in the New Testament. It's like you've got these random guys, and he just walks up to them and says, hey, why don't you come with me? And what does Abram do? He, he listens. God says, hey, I know you don't know me all that well, but I'm God. And I want you to follow me so that we can do something great together. And like the disciples, Abram drops what he's doing. And he follows God's call. Notice three things that God promises Abraham. I did it again. I can't get it out of my mouth. <clears throat> One, land He said, I'm going to lead you somewhere, a place that's going to be your own. He promises them a nation. So you're not going to be a Babylonian. You're not going to be a Chaldean. You're not going to be one of these guys. You're going to have your own nation. People are going to call themselves descendants from you. You are going to start a new people. And then the third part, he says that he's going to bless him. Not just him, and this is huge. He's going to bless all the families of the earth. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Mommy's going to help you. So, there, there are these three promises. And in Abram's mind, there are some obstacles standing in the way of some of these promises becoming a reality. For example, Abram, Abram was 75 years old and childless when he received this promise. And yet, God was telling him that not only would he have kids, but his offspring would spawn in an entirely new nation. 75 years old, no kids. Now, people lived a little bit longer, but he was still old by most standards. So that sounds exciting, but it also sounds almost too good to be true. Not only that, but God is asking Abram to leave behind everything that he knows to go to a new place. Ur is kind of a happening place at that point in time. Uh, the Tower of Babel did not uh, take place too far from here. And so, like, m- 
more advanced civilizations, cities and things like that that we're kind of used to, um, those were developing in this area. So he was in kind of a, a nice place to be. And God is telling him, hey, leave all that. Come with me to the essentially what is this wilderness over here. And he doesn't tell him exactly where he's going to go. He just says, just leave all that. Go with me. We're going to go somewhere else. Where? Well, I'm not telling you yet. Just come with me. That's, that's difficult to do. But Abram has faith that God is going to do what he says he's going to do. And so he and his wife and their nephew and a lot of other people that are with them pack up their things and they leave their family and their home and they follow God. So after several years of waiting, not having a kid, lots of challenges occur. They, have, they, they are wanderers for a long span, a long distance. I can't remember exactly what it was. I looked it up at some point, something like a thousand miles or something they travel on foot. Uh, and they're just wandering through the land. And they face several challenges. And they're still just waiting for these things to happen. So turn to Genesis 15. We're going to skip forward a little bit. So he's waiting. And God says, comes to him again many years later and says, Fear not, Abram. This is Genesis 15.1. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven. And number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And he believed the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. So God reassures Abram that he's going to be faithful to the promises that he made to him. He essentially is saying here, God does not make false promises. It may take a while, but God does not make false promises. If he promised it, it's going to happen. So he reassures him, hey, I made this promise, it's going to happen. And, and he gives him this little picture, which I think, is, I think is one of the cooler interactions in the Bible. It's just like, hey, go, out, go outside for a second. So he goes outside, looks up at the stars, and, and he gives him this, this incredible picture, which, we, you know, that kind of baffles me now because he couldn't count the stars. But now how many stars do we know that there are? It's just ridiculous. I'm talking like millions of millions, billions of billions. Ridiculous. I think that's really cool. Um, I almost tweeted out from the CRC account last night, just go up and look at the stars tonight. I love looking at the stars. <laughs> um, so he continues, verse 7. He said to him, I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old. This is where things start to get weird for us. A she-goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. That's a pretty specific grocery list. 
He brought him all these things, cut them in two, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in two. And when birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, Abram drove them away. This is very strange for us. We're like, what in the world is going on here? Um, but back then, it might not have been so strange. It was more common back then when two people were going to come together to forge an agreement that you would do this, that you would gather these animals together, split them in half, and create kind of a path. And then two parties entering into an agreement would come into this path and walk through it together, kind of symbolically saying, if we break this agreement, may this be done to us. So this was done for like very serious kinds of agreements. So Abraham, or God gives Abram this instruction, and so he goes and he does it, and he's waiting for somebody to show up. Verse 12, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and lo, a dread and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know of a surety that your descendants will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be slaves there, and they will be oppressed for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation which they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your, father, go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation." For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So this whole scene seems kind of odd and mysterious. But within the context of what was going on, Abraham would have understood this. However, it's still odd because two people didn't walk down the pathway. Just one did. When it says that that fire, what it's called a fire pot and a flaming torch. Right after that, it says, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with him. So symbolically, and I'm not sure, don't, if you have, you, you could try to trip me up with this question. What is, why a fire pot? I don't know, to be honest. It is dark. So maybe it's the only way you see what's going on. Some guy's carrying this torch. I, that's, that's the most practical note that I have on that. Um, but this is, this is God walking through this path without Abraham, without Abram, but, but he's making this agreement nonetheless. So by doing this, two things happen. By leaving Abram out of this, two things occur. God ensures, one, that this covenant will be everlasting. If the agreement were founded on Abram, then it would be temporary because Abram's not going to live forever. He's going to die, right? But here's God saying, I'm going to make this promise not just with you, but with all of your kids, like all, generations after you forever. And so 
when God enters into it by himself, it's everlasting. It's founded on God who is eternal. Another thing, if the covenant were conditioned upon Abram or his offspring, his kids, if it was conditioned on their faithfulness to the agreement, then it would have been broken because they were unfaithful at times and, and sometimes for extended periods. And that idea of two people walking together was like, if I break this, kill me, like end this. You have a way out. But God walks through it by himself and so in doing that, he walks into it alone, taking the responsibility of the covenant upon himself, God does. Promising eternal faithfulness and that he himself will, will suffer if the covenant is ever broken. So many years pass and Abram is now 99 years old. And he and Sarah, his wife, still have no children. 24 years after that original promise. They live in tents and they wander through the land of Canaan, sometimes Egypt. No kids, no nation, 24 years of waiting. So, at this point in time, let's jump to Genesis 17. God visits Abram again. Verse 1. We might read a good chunk of this. I am God Almighty, God says to Abraham, Abram. Walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you, and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer, thank God, shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come forth from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant, like what we just said, to, to be God to you and to your descendants after you. And I will give you and your, and your descendants after you the land of your sojournings. All these places he's been wandering around for 24 years. All the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. Verse 9. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant. You and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He that is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not your offspring, both he that is born in your house and he that is bought with your money shall be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarah, but you, oh, Sarai, sorry. But Sarah will be her name. I messed her up too. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? 
shall Sarah, who is 99 or 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live in thy sight. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I will bless him and make him fruitful and multiply him exceedingly. He shall be the father of twelve princes, and I will make him a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this season next year. So finally, 24 years, it'll be 25 years by the time that, they find, that he comes, that Isaac comes. This time has come, this, this promise has come to fruition. But Abraham says, no, it's too late. Make Ishmael my heir. But God says, no, you will have your own son next year. His name is going to be Isaac. And the covenant that I've made with you will live on to him and to future generations after him forever. And this will be a sign to, between me and you for future generations, circumcision. So I, was, I, I spent more time looking at this, actually than the rest of this lesson. Because I felt like I've got a pretty good grasp on what happens with Abraham. But with this one, if we're trying to look at things from God's perspective, then why circumcision? Weird, right? <laughs> um, I feel like there's a few reasons. And nothing, nothing is exactly spelled out. Here or later, you see implications of this, ramifications of this, but it never really gives you like, here's God's logic for this. Um, so I, I kind of thought, why, why this? Um, with these covenant signs, and this is not the only one, um, the rainbow in the clouds was another one that God provided. This was meant to be a reminder for them so that they would know this is the promise that God gave us. And here is a sign that we have, that we can see, that lets us know that we are members in this covenant. And so, in one, it's just simply a reminder. Another, is, another idea is that it's a buy-in. And, and that's, that's not the greatest term. But the idea is like, if you are going to agree to be in this covenant, because they could say, whatever, God, I hate you, I don't want you. And they could just walk away. And God would reciprocate. He would say, great, see you later. This was a way for them to be faithful to that covenant and to say, I'm going to take the steps necessary on what, however it pertains to me to, to obey this covenant, to be obedient to this. And so I'm going to, I'm going to buy in. I'm going, to, I'm going to show God that I care, that I want to be in this covenant. And so it was a way for them to do that. Um, and, and just kind of something that I thought of that I had never really thought of before, and, and it's just me talking, so it's not like God said this. I feel like all of the, all of the covenant signs symbolically point, they're, they're relevant to what's going on. So you think of like the rainbow in the sky. When does a rainbow typically occur? after rain, after floods. So it's pretty timely. Like, hey, there it is. Every time I'm looking at a rainbow, I'm thinking, God's not judging us. Like, he's not killing everybody right now. Even though he has every right to, he's not killing everybody right now. 
And personally, that's what I think of when I see a rainbow. But it's, it's relevant. Like, it's happening in the clouds after it rains under most circumstances. And so you see that and you think, all right, thanks, God. That's a reminder to me. And I know that this isn't spoken of in the same terms, but I feel like baptism is kind of similar. And I'm not making some Presbyterian argument here, for those of you that know about all that. Um, I'm not making a Presbyterian argument. But baptism is kind of similar for us in the New Covenant, right? We have this thing. It doesn't save you. Baptism doesn't save you. But it is something that Jesus commanded. And he says, be faithful to this. When you become saved, be baptized. And in Colossians, it talks about how baptism is kind of a symbol of like dying with Christ. It's like you go under the water and you die. And you come back and you're, you're a new creation. You're, you're with Christ. And so you've got this picture and so it seems like odd. Like anybody who's outside of here would say, man, circumcision, that's weird. Baptism, that's weird. But all of these things are kind of symbolically pointing to the thing that they're related to. And so I feel like circumcision is probably similar. They're wearing now this sign of this covenant on a reproductive organ. So, <laughs> everybody's giggling. But it is, it is silly, but at the same time, like, what's the promise? You're going to have offspring. You're going to have offspring. You're going to have kids. It's going to be a nation. There's going to be so many people that come into this covenant by your family. You won't be able to number it. And it's going to happen through your family. And so it just seems like when you think of it that way, it's like, well, yeah, it kind of makes sense. And it's something that is passed on from generation to generation to generation so that they never forget. It's not like, oh, there's this thing over there, like a temple or something that reminds us. I've never seen it, but it's over there, a temple that reminds us that we're in this covenant. They don't have that at this point in time, but they wear it on themselves. And, you know, as weird as it is for us, I think that that, it makes sense when you think of it in terms of like the big picture of things. So... He institutes this. Also, he does something else. He's no longer Abram, but now he's Abraham. He gives him a new identity. So you are a new person. This kind of mimics, again, like us in the new covenant being a new creation. He takes this man who was an idolater from the Babylonians, and he says, I'm going to make you into something new. I'm going to redeem you and your family, and you're not going to be... Abram of the Babylonians anymore. Abram of the Chaldeans. You're going to be a new man. My family. And so, things progress. Go to Genesis 22. We're going to skip forward a little bit. Isaac is born. Things are going well. He gets older. But then in 22, there's a little bit of a, a crisis for Abram. Abraham. Chapter 22, verse 1. Never had so much problem, so many trouble with, so many, some, with somebody's name. 22, verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, exclamation point, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come to you again. 
And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the, stand, as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice." So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. So another weird thing, just lots of weird things in the life of Abraham. Why would God ask for this? What? God's ultimate sacrifice? It was obviously a challenge for him. God had promised Isaac this whole time. And Abraham keeps trying to pass off these other people. And God, and God says, no, it's going to be Isaac. It's going to be Isaac. And now he's saying, all right, now go sacrifice Isaac. I think that when you see, from, when you see the whole story, God's plan was never to have Isaac killed. Obviously, right? Because he stops him. So, why would he do this? You could offer a book worth of answers, I'm sure. Like, you could, you could talk about this for a long time. One thing that I think is that when you look at this, like at this big picture of what God is doing in Abraham's life, we see this recurring pattern that Abraham is not the one who is earning this. He's not the one who is working out redemption in history. What you see is that God is doing it. And so we get this picture, like God pulls this man out of nowhere and makes something out of him. Says, I'm going to give you a son. He makes him a promise. And he says, let's enter into, an, let's enter into an agreement, but don't sign the contract. I'm going to do it by myself because I'm going to take care of this. I'm going to 
fit. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do all the responsibilities necessary. And I'm going to take care of it. And then he comes to this, we have this picture where he says, now go sacrifice your son and show me that you are faithful to this covenant, that you want in. And he shows him that, but then he stops him and says, no, don't do this. But we know ultimately that God does this himself, right? Like this is, this is one of the most obvious pictures of Christ that there is in the Old Testament. Isaac has a bundle of wood on his back. He's carrying it up this hill, like Christ carrying the cross up a hill. And he goes up and is sacrificed. But where God said, no, you don't do this, he allows it to be done to himself. And so in all of Abraham's life, you see this picture of God saying, let's do this thing together, but really, I'm doing this for you. I'm the one who provides redemption. I'm the one who makes something out of you. I'm the one who provides a sacrifice for sin. You don't do it. I provide. And Abraham had faith in this the whole time, which is the really cool thing. In Hebrews 11, it talks about how Abraham had this mentality that if God really promised that Isaac was his son, like was the guy who was going to be carrying forth this covenant, then there's no way that God would ruin that. And God has shown himself to be faithful. Like, for 25 years, more than that, now it's been like 30-something years, God has said, Isaac is the guy. And so when, when he turns around and says to Abraham, now sacrifice Isaac, Abraham at this point is not worried. And I'm not just making that up. It says that in Hebrews 11, that he had faith that God could raise his son from the dead if he wanted to, because he's seen God do amazing things. And so Abraham knew... God's got this. And he finally, he finally realizes that and just gives it all over to God. Like all of it. Because this is, he staked the last 30 some years of his life, pretty much his whole life. Like he gave up everything for this. And now God is saying give it up. He gives it up because he trusts God. And he now realizes what you can see when you see all these pictures that God is trustworthy. And that he, he's fulfilled all of these things even now. Like when he talks to Abraham, Genesis 12, I'm going to bless all the families. He does that through Christ. When he says, I'm going to be faithful to this. When, he, when he's the only one who walks through the covenant. And we see that he's faithful because Abraham's descendants are trash for most of, the, most of history. They just don't listen. They, they disobey God. And God says, I'm faithful anyway. And he sacrifices himself. Like the animals split in that pathway, he says, somebody broke the covenant, but I'm going to bear the responsibility. And then he fulfills it in Isaac. He's like, I'm going to be the sacrifice to atone for all these sins. It's me. So we had this like really weighty idea last week that God is sovereign over evil. And that's hard to comprehend. But then you see here like that God goes to great lengths over the course of millennia to be faithful to redeem humanity. And that's the good news that ultimately points to Christ for us. And these promises that God gave to Abraham way back then that, that were done in the midst of these weird rituals that don't make a whole lot of sense when we read them, those are applicable to us today. Because him being faithful means that we are saved. And that's worth singing about, right? So let's do that.